Growing up, my favorite toy in all the world, like many kids today, was Legos. I built everything I could imagine at the time period, from spaceships to castles to houses to bridges, always following the instructions, making sure I was doing what I was supposed to do. And so you'd think when it came to some Ikea furniture, man, I'd have that licked. A few years ago, we had to buy a new bookshelf for my upstairs room with where my kids were going to keep some of their books for homeschool and all that stuff. And I sat down and thought, man, I'm going to make sure this piece of Ikea furniture is nice and solid, right? That it's not going to fall apart on me. It's not going to break. So I got out the instructions. I got out of all the parts. I started putting it together. And each piece I glued in place. I sealed it in. I made sure it was nice and solid. And then uh, within two weeks, somebody came up to me and said, Dad, why is this thing not not working right? The, the shelf keeps falling off. I'm like, what are you talking about? I put that thing together solid, right? Start looking at it. And sure enough, the, the shelves weren't fitting right. Something was going on and it was like, what is happening here? And I realized in the middle of the process with all my gluing on all my focus, I had flipped one part around. Just one, just one part, wrong orientation. And from that point on, this shelf has leaned and books have fallen. I've added all kinds of aspects to it to keep the shelves up. I mean, big old eye rings and, and you name it. I've nearly done everything but tear this thing apart and rebuild it. Because it's always better to assemble something correctly the first time than to have to assemble it again. That's why over Christmas, many of you saw that sign on the box, Sun Assembly Required, and you're going, man, that means I've got some work to do. Sure enough, this is the same case with churches. Look, churches are best built right the first time, making sure we get it right. But there are always cases. There are always instances and situations where you're going to have to go back and begin to rebuild. Go back and begin to put things back in order because we're human beings. We're sinful. Things fall apart. And this is exactly what we see, not only here at Olive Ranch as we're working through some things, but also in 1 Timothy. And while we're considering how we come out of COVID, how we come out of these scenarios, how we come back to rebuild all of branches God intends us to be and what it looks like as we reopen doors and do all these kinds of things, we are going to be examining this concept here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you guys to grab your Bibles, open it up, and join with me there right at home, and you're going to engage today in the whole process. Please don't leave this online experience until you've gone through the whole thing even after the message. But right now, grab your Bible, open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at verses 18 through uh, 215 today, and we're starting off with this. It's a reminder that the church in Ephesus was having some problems of its own, had already been assembled by Paul, had already been put together, and now he leaves Timothy. And Timothy's job is to remain and charge certain persons not to uh, cause uh, confusions and to be speaking about the, uh, the law in a way that creates them to be distracted. And as we looked at that in our last series in 1 Timothy, we saw we can get distracted by, by all kinds of good things and bad things and controversies and all this stuff. And what we want to do is keep focused on the gospel. And so he tells Timothy this, and just kind of a reminder, it's a good summation. It ends like this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, this seems pretty serious. He's like, wait, okay, you got to wage a good warfare? Yeah, holding fat to a good conscience. And he's like, hey, listen, I've left you to, to challenge these false teachers. I've left, left you to tell these leaders 
to go. And you need to do this by holding faith and a good conscience, because by rejecting this, this good faith, this faith and good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Fascinating. In fact, Timothy is to remove these false teachers. He, Paul's already removed these two guys. In fact, we, we learn about um, uh, Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy, and actually reads this way, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philistus, um, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. These guys were already teaching that Jesus had resurrected everybody, that it is all over, that we were in the end times. And this actual false teaching continues to exist today. But Paul was saying, these guys have, have swerved from the faith. We need to remove them. We're done. That you, you've got to set aside any of these false teachers that are causing problems, Timothy, and, and we need to deal with this. Now, this is hard. Timothy is facing something difficult. Think about this. Hymenaeus and Alexander are somebody's pastor, some house church's teacher. Th- these people have been there when they were sick. These people have prayed over them. They possibly did weddings. They, they possibly were there in the middle of a crisis for somebody, giving money, raising an offering, serving communion, making baptism procla- proclamations over these people. Hymenaeus and Alexander are people's beloved leaders, and their false teaching has led them astray. And so when Timothy is going to come in to deal with guys like Hymenaeus and Alexander, when Timothy is going to come in to deal with these beloved teachers and pastors and remove them, guys, guarantee you, it is not going to be easy. If you're dealing with somebody in your small group and you're telling them that's a false teaching and they're not listening and you have to remove them, it is going to cause problems. If it's in the church and we have to remove a leader, we have to remove a pastor, we have to remove an elder, when something like that has to happen because of false teaching, man, it wages war on your soul. Satan's there to split the church up. It's sort of like having that unit that I built suddenly not work because one piece, one piece has become out of order. I'm going to have to tear the whole thing apart to get that one piece out. It's going to cause destruction. It's no wonder Paul tells him, listen, Timothy, you've got to do this. You've got to heal the church. You've got to rebuild the church. There's going to be some assembly required, but you've got to do it without losing your faith because it is difficult to be told that you're a mean person, be told that you're heartless or that your theology, you're wrong, and you should be removed and all these kinds of things that happen when these kind of confrontations occur. It's always difficult because the enemy wants to divide. The enemy wants to destroy. And so it's hard when we walk and see false teachers and other teachers begin to push this in. And you don't want to lose your faith. You don't want the church to lose their faith because the church can lose their faith. People can begin to feel frustrated and begin to go, wait a minute, what's going on with my church? And in our culture, we just jump ship and go somewhere else. We don't even give it a chance to fight through the situation. And it's just historically been difficult. It has been so in the mainline churches and the mainline denominations as liberalism and the idea of Jesus um, not having resurrected from the dead as the Bible's a nice book and all, but we want to do the morals. We don't care about the spiritual. When this kind of stuff began to rise and it was from good logical thinking and scholars and stuff like this, what happened was the conservative side, those who wanted to hold to the classic faith, couldn't stick it out. They left. And now those churches are pretty much not even Christian churches. Universities like Harvard became so liberalized by similar things, Yale was started. Yale to stand against the false teachings that were beginning at Harvard. Now where's Yale? And so on, so our university system has shown these same similar situations. 
What we see is that this entire movement is never easy. It can kill the soul of a church. It can harm things. It, it disassembles the church. So when Timothy comes in, he's having to reassemble the church. And in a similar way, not, not in a false teaching manner, but in a similar way, we've had struggles here at Olive Branch. Some people have been listening to teachers that aren't from the church. You can listen to online podcasts. You can listen to various uh, social media groups. And to be honest, there are podcasts out there telling you if your pastor doesn't say these specific words, you need to leave. Now, if I've ever heard something satanic, that's it. He doesn't tell you, go talk to your pastor. He doesn't say, go deal with the things, go talk to your elders. And then he tells you, just leave. That's divisive. That's broken. And these people aren't being challenged because they're not in their churches. They're other pastors doing their deal. And what happens is suddenly we see that we've got an issue here. It brings disunity as we have to deal with these things, especially in our culture where we can just up and go. Now here at Olive Branch, we've had some people up and go because of these kinds of other influences and people and the unsettling of COVID and these kinds of things. And in a real way, we've got to reassemble. We've got to regather and put some pieces back together and refocus ourselves, not on the distractions of all the other things that are happening in our culture, but to stay fixated upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we go in when we've had people leaving, when we've had leaders and things like this going on out in our culture? Well, the answer is very clear that uh, Paul tell, that Paul gives us. First and foremost, he says, if you're going to rebuild, if you're going to reassemble, if you're going to do this assembly thing right, we assemble the people to pray. We assemble the people to pray. We have got to assemble to pray together. We've got to fixate and focus on that prayer. Now, what I love about this is that Paul makes this absolutely clear. He actually says, first of all then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people right? For kings and for all in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So we'll just pause right there. This, this is huge. Paul says, first of all, above all other things, we need to pray. We need to assemble together to pray. And, and this is what the church is supposed to do above all other things is waste some time in prayer. And I use that term, waste some time, because Paul is very clear. Man, you guys need to pray. You go, well, no, that's Timothy. Timothy's the one who needs to go be praying, not, not the people. Well, again, as we've said, this is a leadership book. And as the leader goes, so goes the congregation. Yes, I, the elders, and our staff, we should be wasting time praying for the church. And we're going to be growing in that and developing that even more in our lives because if this is first and foremost in the assembly of the church, then we need to be doing this. And we as a congregation need to be praying for the church and all these different things. First and foremost, prayer is on the top list of the priorities of reassembling a church in the middle of difficulty. And this is huge because it seems like a big waste of time. I keep using that because we are a fast paced people in a slow, being asked to do a slow paced thing, right? We're a quick, fast paced people who want to get out there and do stuff. Years ago, I stood next to an atheist and he made this simple complaint about prayer. He said, oh, all you Christians, you all want to pray, but you don't want to do anything. Now, I think he is very ignorant of how much Christianity and Christians do. But the thing is that he was also ignorant how much we probably actually pray. And to be quite honest, many of us find prayer a difficult thing. 
We find it something that isn't uh, on our top priority because we do feel like, man, this just waste time. I can get up and go do that. Why would I ask God for it? Why would I get a, ask God for help here when I can get up, solve my own problems, solve these situations? You know, I can, I can solve my own marriage. I'll get counseling. I'll go put some money in the bank. I'll go get a loan. I'll get... Yes, absolutely. We can do these things, but that doesn't mean we don't pray. It doesn't mean that we do it in our own power, and it doesn't mean that we don't... Uh, that we ignore the God who grants us these gifts and these things. Now, I believe that if we're going to waste some time in prayer... We're going to waste some time today in prayer. We're going to waste some time on our knees. God's going to redeem the time. I've seen it over and over. The days I start myself on my knees are the days that it seems everything else lines up quickly. And I have more focus and more energy. That's anecdotal, but I've met many people who feel the same. God helps fixate us upon himself and enables us to do the things we need to do when we waste that time in prayer. And I guess what I'm saying is it's not a waste. God redeems it every single time. Second, It's a difficult thing, again, because we are a fast-paced people. In a world where there was no television, in a world where entertainments were low, in a world where, yes, these kind of things aren't really around. Man, prayer was a time that you could sit back and focus. You had moments of silence, but even then they said it was too fast-paced. Even then they felt like it was too busy. Prayer has always been something you had to dedicate to. Just like a marriage. You've got to set apart time to have a date. You've got to set apart time to have conversations. Just as parents, you have to set apart time to hang out with your kids. You can't just give it all to work. You can't just give it all to play. And it's hard in our distracted culture to stop and set apart time with God. Even if it begins with 10 minutes. Even if it starts, you'll find those 10 minutes fly by as you sit on your knees or you sit on with your head bowed in prayer. 10 minutes. Is, is something that's not going to be a wasted time. It's going to be powerful as it begins to grow. And it also slows us down. And it reminds us of one true thing. Guys, we are dependent upon God. This is why it's first. It reminds us our dependence is not upon what we can do and our power and all the gifts in the church and all. It starts with prayer. God, we are dependent upon you. We have access to you. You can act through us. You can empower us. You can bring whatever we need. You are the one who can bring the unity we seek. You are the one who can remove these people. You are the one who can shape and change our lives. And when a church gets on its knees in prayer on a regular basis, what we will find is that we become a people dependent upon God. So we need to see that we're going to launch out this year with some times of prayer. And when we call out for a time of prayer in a midweek service, or we call out for prayer in the middle of the week or on a Sunday night, man, we should come. It should not be the least attended service. It should be the most attended service. Even if you attend for 20 minutes, even if you come just to pray for some time, to pray for the church, to pray for the nations, to pray for whatever it is we're praying for, we should be praying as a church. First of all, that's how it works. Second, I want to remind us that when I say this word prayer, we're not just talking about talking to God. Prayer is way more than just quote-unquote talking to God. All right, And that's important because there has been a tendency to turn prayer away from a dedicated activity into just a random talking to God. Well, I talk to God all the time during the day. You know, when I smash my thumb, oh God, that hurts. You know, that's not talking to God. Okay, that's not how that works. We want more than just 
randomly talking to God. There needs to be a time where we're spending time with God, dedicated corporately together, individually on our own. Yes, this will, again, take some time, but prayer is way more. Notice again what Paul does. He uses four different words. He says prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, supplications, all these four words. What is supplication. That's a big word. Notice the word supply is involved there. The word means to ask God for a supply. Ask God for one specific thing. We're making a specific request about something, and and it's simple. You don't have to go, God, as my holy vending machine, will you do this? No, it's just ask Him, please, like you would ask someone else. Please, God, could you just help me today in my meeting? Keep me focused? Please, God, would you help my children today as they're in school uh, to keep their, their cameras on and, and take good notes? God, will you please bring me the supply that I need? We need some money so our business doesn't go under, right? Okay. Supply, supplication. It's asking God for the things of our needs. Yes, even our wants. God loves to meet us in our prayers and answer us in our prayers. Second is the word prayers itself. This is a general catch-all. And so some, some people, some commentators will say, hey, all four, there's not a lot of distinction. All four of these words pretty much mean the same thing. But let's just play with it for a second. Prayer, when it comes to this word with supplications, when they're attached to the Old Testament, it means speaking to God, but speaking to the right God. When you talk, do you just randomly talk to God or are you talking to the Holy Trinity, the God who saved you? Do you speak to Jesus? Do you speak to the Spirit who is dwelling with you? Are you speaking to the Father in heaven as we've been called to? Are you referencing God specifically, or are you just randomly referencing a God? No, you are saved through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That means in His work, we approach our Heavenly Father. We approach God in heaven, our Father. Hallowed be His name, right? This is the idea that we connect with this one who is Jesus' Father, now our Father, in the name of Jesus. We have a relationship with God that is very different. And so when we pray, we pray to the proper God. We pray to the real God, the Trinitarian God of the universe, our Creator, Yahweh Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Third, you intercede. And this is a word that is basically meaning that we're kind of a mediator. We're a go-between. We're going to stand between someone else and God. And that's why we pray for each other. We're interceding. And when intercession happens, it's just not like, hey, God, do you remember that person? No, you should put yourself in their scenario and be like, God, they're in pain. And I need to ask that you would please meet them right now for comfort. When we put ourselves in those positions, we learn empathy. We connect with people. But it's the ability to bring up other people's needs. Intercession is one of the most powerful things that if we will do this, you'll begin to see all kinds of things that God is doing. And it's requesting on behalf of other people. Finally, Thanksgiving. This is the celebration where God has already answered you. A lot of people love to keep notes on what they're praying for. Maybe you've watched the movie War Room and you've got your notes all over your wall. Awesome. The people will check mark and mark things to make the declaration that God indeed has met me in this time and he answered my prayer. And we mark it off. And then we thank God because it builds the heart of prayer. When you see that God responds and God answers, you want to go pray more. That's just how it works. The people I know who love to pray, it's because God is there answering their prayers. And they're seeing it because they're recording it and they're walking through it. And this year, as you start off, maybe what we need to do, first of all, 
at the beginning of our year is to be putting these four things into our lives and praising God through a journal or something like that. And so we see we need to connect with God and we need to connect with our Father in heaven. We need to connect with Jesus. We need to be in prayer. But here's another thing. When we come, we need to come as if he's a real person. It's really what's behind this. We connect with with God. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? So we're coming to a real person. I've had this conversation with a couple of guys I'm discipling, and we all agree it is difficult to remember that God's not an idea, that our Father, that Yahweh himself, that Jesus is a real person. We need to sit and speak to him as a real person because he is a true real person. He's not our buddy. He's not an idea. He is the king of the universe. He is our father. And so there's a tension there that we come to. We can come to God and we can accidentally treat him like an idea or even a vending machine. God, give me this and I'll do this. This isn't a bargain. What you're doing is you're coming to the the sovereign and only king of all sovereigns, right? We come to him and we say, would you please hear my petition? We're able to come because of what Jesus did, but we come with respect because he's our king, but a familiarity, a connection because he is our father. We know we would love to answer our prayers, and He can. Now that should orient the way we come in prayer. When we come together in prayer, at the end of this message, we want to come knowing God wants to answer our prayers because He's our Father, He cares about the mission of the church, He cares about us, and He's capable because He's the King of all kings. And so we want to come with this formality and familiarity balanced together in the way we approach prayer. It's not just buddy, buddy God or daddy and poking daddy and wrestling all the time. It is often formal as well. So yes, there's a balance there and we want to remember that. And we want to pray for those needs. We want to pray for those desires. We want to pray for these things. In fact, we want to pray primarily for all people, right? This is what he says. We want to pray for everyone. We pray for all people. This isn't just some people. This isn't just groups of people. This is all people. We want to pray for the church, for each other, interceding and asking for supply. We want to pray for our families. We want to pray for our kids, but we want to pray for our neighbors. We want to pray for our government officials. I think often what we do is we end up praying for our family, maybe our small group, and then we kind of just go through the rest of our lives. And Paul reminds us we're to pray for those who are not Christians. Do you see that? That's amazing. In fact, there was a ministry that I had heard about when I was going through a class called Perspectives. These men had gathered together in a decision that they were going to do one thing. They were going to go door to door throughout their neighborhood and tell people, we're praying for you. In the name of Jesus, we're going to pray to Jesus that he will answer your prayers. What do you need prayer for? And people would mock them and make fun of them, but then they would go back after collecting all these prayers, and they would pray. They would go every single week to these same doors after they'd pray, and they'd say, so has Jesus answered your prayer yet? And invariably, many of them, Jesus answered them. Some of them outlandish prayers. It was bringing people to salvation all over their block because God loves to answer prayers, as we will see in a second. He loves this. He wants us to be praying for all all people. Now, this includes kings and all who are in high positions. And I think Paul has to say this because we're talking about leadership in the church, but we're also talking about the the group of people we often don't like. They didn't like their kings in high positions, 
Often they were separated from them. This is probably a group of poor slaves and, and, and poor people with a couple rich people in the group. They were told, don't forget you guys while you're praying for the needs of each other. Don't forget to pray for those in high positions. They don't have anything. What would they need? Why? They have everything they want. Right. We pray for them that they may know God. We pray for them that they may be changed. Guys, we pray for our president. We pray for our world leaders. We pray for our Congress leaders. We pray for the House and the Senate and the judiciary. Pray for your governors. Pray for your mayors and your county, and your county supervisors. Guys, why? Because, man, there's a lot of leaders who have a lot of effect on our lives. And we want to pray that they would be wise. We want to pray that they would orient themselves around the truths of Scripture, around the reality of the world. We don't want a false idea to get into their minds because it will lead them astray, and then therefore we are led astray. We should be constantly praying for our leadership. One of the best things I've seen is my in-laws have been those who have just dove into this idea, and they've been praying for our leaders, whether they like them or not, every day. And man, I see how it has affected their minds and their hearts about the leadership, but also I believe that it's affecting our nation because they are willing to spend time on their knees lifting these people up. I think we all should be doing this. We should all be in this situation. We're praying for our enemies. We're praying for our persecutors. We're praying for all those around us, even these false teachers. It's all people with kings. And what's the purpose of this? Why would we do all this? that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, that's not what we wanted. If you want to be famous and big and huge and all that stuff, that's not really the aim of the Christian life. The aim of the Christian life is peace, where things are in the right order, where people are in the right order, where uh, we're right with God, we're right with others, and we live a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What I love about this is, this is kind of the aim Paul has in so many of his letters. He tells the Thessalonians our aim is to live quiet lives where we don't have to be dependent upon anybody because we can work hard. It's in a sense where the, that we're not in opposition to government. We're not loud and vocal all the time. We're, we're not in the eyeball of the people. We can live without persecution. We can be faithful and preach the gospel and do our things like we've been able to live so well here in the United States. We need to continue to pray for all these different people. This is the first and foremost thing that we do. And it's not just talking to God. There's a formality. There's a group of people and all kinds of things. And when God answers, we thank Him. Now, finally, we need to land on the fact that a praying church pleases God. When we pray, a praying church ultimately makes God happy. When we're dependent upon Him, when we're lifting up everyone we can, when we're seeing Him work, He loves it. He says, this is good that we would live these quiet and godly lives in prayer like this. He says, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. I love this. It's pleasing God. It's pleasing Him. who He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Look, the bottom line here is it pleases God when we pray for these people, and it pleases him when we pray for their salvation. Not only is loving Christ a prayer part of loving Christ, and we intercession can be like living for Christ, but it also backs sharing Christ. When we want to love, live, and share Christ to make Him known wherever we go, that means prayer is number one because it pleases God, our Savior. 
That's a big term. It says he rescued us. So why wouldn't we pray that God rescues other? He is our salvation. So why wouldn't we pray he's the salvation of all these other groups we just looked at, including the false teachers, including those high-powered HOAs and things like that, right? And our point is that we want to see these people know Christ. He desires all people. And I really do believe that means all people. He doesn't want us to discriminate on anyone. He doesn't need us to determine who the elect are and who aren't. He doesn't want us to run around going, well, those people are beyond salvation and those people. No, we pray for everybody because everybody needs that opportunity to hear the gospel and reach that chance of salvation. Guys, we want to bring it to them and it starts in prayer on our knees, begging God to reach them. And he loves this because he's been our mediator. He's our savior. He's our go-between. He wants us to be a go-between on our knees between God and these people asking him to meet their needs and bring them to faith. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray. And it's no wonder that Jesus would tell us then, this is part of our prayer life. We should be praying that the harvesters go out. Remember when he said this? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you still believe that the harvest is plentiful? Or do you think it's kind of, you know, it's done. There's not enough people out there. There are over 200,000 people who don't don the door of a church on a Sunday, who don't click on it to look at it. It's probably grown even more. Man, there's tons of people. There's a huge harvest out there. And he tells us what? We need to pray earnestly, not just a little bit. Let's be earnest that God would reach these people, that he would see them saved, their souls transformed. Where there is little prayer, I guarantee you, there is little salvation. When our prayer team is in its strongest, we see the most people come to Christ. And I believe if we were a church daily asking God to reach people, if we were a church gathering together and putting it as first to pray for the salvation of our nations, the salvation of our friends, the salvation of the people around us, we would have laborers going out all over the place and seeing all kinds of transformations. We are the little priests. We sit between. We, we sit because He has been our mediator and God is pleased because he has been our mediator and we are being a mediator. It is a way of being like Jesus. He intercedes on our behalf. We're able to intercede on his behalf. We are able to pray because God has made us the priests on this earth. In Revelation, it says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are priests on this earth. So, so start wearing your long hassock and make sure that you, no, no, that's not my point. A priest is someone who stands between God and man. And what we do in the primary purpose of being a priest is to introduce people to Jesus. We share him, but it starts with prayer. We intercede. We lay our lives before them. We be a mediator as Christ mediates for us. And at the beginning of this year, if there's anything that we need to do, it is the beginning of, first of all, so what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a time of prayer as we continue forward here in this service online. So do not click off. Listen to the music. Allow it to prime you. Allow it to be part of this prayer time. Music is just written prayers, let's be honest. And what we have a chance to do is then we're going to pray for our government. Then we're going to do a song. We're going to pray then for our neighbors and our church. And then there'll be one more song, and then we're going to say goodbye and praise God. And hopefully what you will do is then take these three segments and go from here and add them into a 10-minute prayer life 
every morning, just 10 minutes or every evening, 10 minutes, set your timer on your phone, 10 minutes, and just bow your head and pray for whatever comes to your mind about government, about your neighbors, and about our church. And let's see what God begins to do because he longs to see everyone saved. He longs to see his church assembled. And guys, it begins with prayer. It's going to be hard, but there is some assembly required. Let's begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us now as we pray. While some of us are engaging online right now live, others of us are engaging at a future time when we're watching this on demand, we ask that you would hear our prayers and that you would begin to motivate us and move us to lifting up all of those who are in our government right now. And so, God, would you just take these next 30 seconds and hear our prayers? So if you're watching this, go ahead. Just lift up our president, our government, our Congress, and our government, our our state government. Father, indeed, we just want to lift these um, various people and all of the different levels of government of the United States to you. We ask that you'd give them wisdom. We ask that you would allow them to put not their political ideology before the people they are to serve. We pray that you would allow your word and your gospel to begin to run through the Senate, run through Congress, run through the Capitol, run through our entire political system like COVID did. God, that it would just transform hearts and bring about a glorious, glorious knowledge of you and that we would see revival in our government. They need you, God, even though they have everything they could possibly want and all the power, we know that they need you. So we ask that you'd bless them in Jesus' name. Water you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you
we're going to move into a time where we're going to pray for our neighbors. Now, when I talk about neighbors, I mean those who dwell near you. That could be your next door neighbors. That could be your coworkers. That could even potentially just be people that you know in your jogging groups or your gym. But I want you to be praying for your friends, your neighbors, and those coworkers right now because God wants to work in their lives. You may know specific prayers for them, and you may want to pray those right now. And I'll close with just a kind of a generic prayer, but I want to give you an opportunity to think through those and to really begin to list out some of those neighbors that you know need Jesus or you know that have needs. And let's be those intercessors, those mediators at this time. And when we're done with that, we will pray over our church. So join with me first as we pray just over our neighbors. Finally, we're going to pray for our church. And that means that we're going to take a time and just lift up three things. You know, coming in this next year, financially, we need prayer. It's difficult for everybody out there, and the same for the church. In order to continue to the ministries we want to do, we want to ask that you would pray our finances would be robust and that they would be able to allow us to really begin to minister in the ways that we've we see and, and believe God is leading us to enter. Second, that we pray that people would uh, rejoin, come back together, reassemble into the ministries that, um, that they're gifted for and that we want to reach out to people through. And finally, we, we just want to pray for a, a sense of just health of the gospel itself, that we would be outreach-oriented and that we would begin to see people come to know Jesus. That's our prayer to love, live, and share Christ, that these things would happen. And so would you just join me as I'm going to just pray over our church together. And so you just pray with me. Would you bow your heads? Father, we bring up to you not just our neighbors, and we thank you for them and just these prayer requests that were so um, detailed, intimate to our own areas. But we want to now lift all of Branch to you. And God, we ask that you would indeed aid us in the finances, that uh, you would supply the needs for, uh, for the ministry that we desire to do, for the things that you've called us to do that you'd also bring about the people with their gifts to fill in the slots to do great ministry from arts and uh, music, technology, God, to the very ability to, to write and, and to just minister and be kind. And there's so much now that is in front of us. We long that you would allow us to connect with one another and to build these groups up into community to where we are meeting together, God. Rebirth our small groups and enable us to have an outreach, a stretching outreach that is beyond anything we could have imagined and that many people would come to know your name because we are reaching out as a church together into this neighborhood, into this place we love called Corona. We thank you for what you've given to us. We ask you to meet us in these things. Be exalted, we pray, in our church. We thank you that you hear us, Father. It is in the name of Jesus we do pray. Amen.
and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you Lord turn his face toward you Children and the children. 